Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. Hey, my name is Jacqueline Siegel. I'm a doctoral candidate at Western University in London, Ontario, and uh, I study lots of interesting things about gender and sexuality and body image and fashion and lots of lots of fun <laughs> stuff. I'm very excited to be here. Um, so we can talk about lots of different things today. Amazing. Um, so the way we structure the podcast is that we have a few career-related questions, and then we'll um, kind of ask you about, you know, your research and kind of your research-informed opinions on certain issues. Right. Um, so yeah, Kat will start off with some of the career questions. Yeah. So the first question would be: um, Could you just tell us a little bit about how you became involved in research and how you chose your specific topic for your PhD? Yes. So my my research journey has been rather interesting and a little bit haphazard. So when I started my undergraduate degree, I initially started out in comprehensive science because I wanted to be doing epigenetic research. Uh, I wanted to identify behavioral loci for uh, specific conditions I was interested in, and one of which was uh, anorexia nervosa because I was interested in eating disorders at the time. And then quickly into my undergraduate career, I realized that Comprehensive science was not for me. <laughs> it, it's good for other people, but organic chemistry was never going to be something that I enjoyed. And so I switched after my first semester into a psychology program because I was in, because I was interested in eating disorders. I knew, you know, obviously eating disorders are a psychological condition, and so I wanted to learn more about them that way. And I also knew that if I wanted to continue studying eating disorders, I would need to be doing lab work. Like that, I knew that was something that looked good on a graduate's, graduate application. I wish I could say that like, I was so passionate and immediately drawn to research, but that is not the honest answer. The honest answer is that I did what I needed to do to build my CV to get into grad school. So the first lab that I started out in was an infant cognition lab. And so I was involved in understanding how it is that children acquire information about the world and how it is that they learn best. And it was a really positive experience. I learned a lot. I got to see a lot of babies and that was great. Um, and, but it, it, it just didn't, it didn't feel right. You know, I wasn't that interested in what we were doing. I was more excited about the babies than I was about the research. And that's probably an indication that I'm not doing the right kind of research. So um, I worked through undergraduate super duper fast. Um, I was able to, I knew that I would be eligible to graduate after my third year of undergrad. And so during my second year, I decided to apply to Villanova's combined master's and undergrad program. And so I got into that. And so I started my undergraduate degree with my, um, with my master's concurrently during the third year of my undergrad. And I knew I wanted to study eating disorders and there was no one who wanted to study eating disorders with me on the faculty. So I was like, oh no, what do I do now? Um, so I ended up, you know, combining my research interests with the professor who taught my psychology of gender course because I loved my psych of gender course. And I was like, however we can blend what it is that we're doing, that's what I want. And that's the only way I'm gonna be able to move forward in this program. Because if I'm not doing something with eating disorders, I don't really see the point of me continuing to do research here. Mm -hmm. So she was an industrial organizational psychologist and I was interested in the clinical condition. So we blended our interests and we did a large qualitative study about how it is that women and men with eating disorders navigate um, stressful workplace situations 
uh, and we developed a, you know, we used grounded theory analysis to establish a framework for understanding how it is that recovery can be managed in the workplace. And it was like a super positive experience, loved it a lot. And after that, I was determined to learn more about eating disorders. And I was actually interested in clinical programs at the time. So I knew I wanted to work with Dr. Rachel Calagero because her research is absolutely fabulous. I only applied to two programs, one of which was in New Jersey, which is where I was living, and then one of which was here in London. Um, and I guess you can figure out where I ended up based, based <laughs> on that. Uh, but when I applied to Western, I thought I was applying to a clinical psychology program and I applied to a social psych program. <laughs> so it was um, kind of a happy accident that I landed where I am. Uh, but I, and when I was applying to Western, I thought it would be to study eating disorders. I was, I'm a yoga teacher as well. So I wanted to do, you know, look at how mindfulness affects individuals who are recovering from eating disorders. But then as soon as I got to Western, I started talking to Rachel, Dr. Palagero about feminism and my own kind of understanding of the world and how it is that sociocultural factors influence the development, development and maintenance of eating disorders. And she was like, okay, well, you should study that then. You should study the systems rather than the conditions. And I was like, okay, great, let's do it. And so now all my research is on feminist identity um, and opposing cultural standards and expectations for women. Um, and then I also look at um, men and masculinity as well and how it is that masculine norms, rigid adherence to masculine norms, the sort of hegemonic masculine expectations can influence the way that men feel about their bodies and the ways that they engage with the world. And so that's where my research is mostly now. Um, and, you know, I'm headed off in a new path soon. And that will be looking potentially at um, either eating disorders or gender-based violence more broadly. So um, I'm in a good place now and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next. Are you searching for like a postgrad like job or postdoc or anything right now? Do you have any future yes. plans? I am on the job market. Hire <laughs> <laughs> me at your university. Um, yeah, so I'm applying to jobs and to postdocs. I actually just yesterday submitted my. It was so it, God. I was working on it since July, but my F32 postdoc grant with Dr. Asia Eaton um, was submitted to the NIH yesterday. So. Fingers crossed for that, but there are a lot of exciting opportunities on the horizon, but I'm trying not to get too excited about any of them in particular, because of course, like, it's just such a crapshoot. You have no idea where you're going to end up, you don't know where you'll be or what you'll be studying. And so trying to keep all my options open at this point. I was just going to say as a tangent, it's really awesome just to hear how you said you only applied to two programs, and then you ended up in the one that you really truly belonged in, even though you may not have known what it could have led to. But it's really awesome that you found a place that would foster your your growth and your development as a researcher and as a social psychologist rather than a clinical one. So that's really cool to hear. Yeah, I think yeah. we end up where we're supposed to end up, right? Yeah. Uh, the universe sometimes works in mysterious ways, and I feel like I'm uh, here where I am right now. For a particular reason, and some of which, I mean, maybe I don't know how political y'all want to get on this podcast, but that my candidate overlapped with Trump's presidency, so I was out of the United States while Trump was there. I mean, beautiful! Oh my gosh, character. <laughs> yeah. Are you looking to stay in Canada going forward? Um, no, I mean, I like Canada. I would love to stay in Canada. However, the odds of me staying in Canada are rather slim for, um, a variety of reasons. The first of which is that like my family is all in the States and like, um, right now my partner's in the States. And so, um, there's incentive to be in the United States rather than being in Canada. But then the also, uh, the other part of it is that 
um, a lot of the tenure track faculty positions in Canada must give priority to Canadian citizens or permanent residents. And given that I am not a citizen or permanent resident, the odds of me as an American, uh, particularly as an American without a postdoc, actually, um, you know, being hired for one of these positions is, is rather slim. So I am applying to some schools in Canada, uh, applying to some positions in Canada, but for the most part, it's it's in the States. Mm, that makes that sense. Makes, yeah. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. I didn't yeah. know until this year either. And it's unfortunate <laughs> because Canada is a great place to be. But um, obviously, I, I want to be realistic about the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they should make that information public somehow, I feel. They do on the job advertisements, they'll like list it at the bottom, but oh. that small print. <laughs> yeah, especially when you're applying to grad school, you don't look for the jobs that you're going to be getting eventually. So you yeah, don't know that that's exactly. yeah. But it doesn't work because you're going to go back to the U.S. anyways, and that's where family and your partner is. So it's it makes okay. sense. <laughs> what has been a highlight for, your, uh, for you throughout your research career? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> How do I pick just one? There have been so many amazing opportunities that have come up because of this. Um, I mean, I don't know if anything beats the high of having your first article published. Um, and my, I mean, I guess it technically wasn't my first article. My first first author article was my master's thesis research about women with eating disorders and it was published in Psych of Women Quarterly. And my God, what an exhilarating experience to see like three years worth of work put in, like immortalized in the pages of this amazing journal that was a really, really positive experience for me. I would say others have been like conferences. I attended the um, Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues conference last year in San Diego. And between San Diego and social justice people and hearing cool research, I, I feel like my heart grew three sizes that day. It was such a wonderful experience. And then I think two more, sorry, I could not possibly pick just one. Another uh, really, really neat experience I had was I proposed my own special issue um, with, with a team, uh, but I'm the lead editor on it for Psych of Women Quarterly, and now we have our own special issue, and like as a graduate student, that's absolutely chaotic. I can't believe that it's happening still, um, but so we have like editor privileges within the journal and whatever, and so that's neat, but then I also... There are smaller things, right? So some of it is seeing my honors thesis students present their research for the first time and seeing some of their work being published in like smaller journals, like student journals and things. Um, and then I've got some students right now who I think their research is going to be published in like big journals too. And to know that I had a hand in that, that I like supported them through that, that is such a heartwarming thing to see. Um, it's, it's just, I think about, my role in academia as I like to say that I'm the friend who sits in the back of your dissertation proposals, dissertation defense, and asks you questions that you know so that you look amazing. And that is what I like to do with everyone. Like I feel like there's so little compassion and so little heart in the way that we do academia and the way that we do research. And I like to be that like warm presence for people. So being able to do that for my own students is just it makes me feel amazing. So I would say those are four answers, I guess, to that question. Thank you for that. I'm sure the students are so lucky to have you as their thesis advisor and mentor. And it's just so nice to have people like that in the academic space when, like you said, it, it can feel cold and hard to get through anything or anywhere. So it's nice to have those people around. Well, thanks. I, 
I have been fortunate to have been surrounded by people who have been that for me. And so to be able to pass that on is, it, I, it feels like a responsibility for me. And it's one that I am so glad to have. That's awesome. Yeah, I think those are very unique experiences to people in academia. Like you can turn this experience into something that's like positive. And I think for a lot of people, like it's not. And I think, you know, like obviously there are a lot of systemic issues as to why that is. And, you know, hopefully we're all working towards a better future for academia. But yeah, I think there are a lot of problems um, and tackled. And, you know, I mean, I'm not, I won't get too radical about this, but there is a part of me that feels like the intense burnout so many academics face, given the unreasonable demands that all of us are kind of expected to live up to. uh, I think that contributes to people's unwillingness to fight some of this because academics, many people are so smart and can articulate exactly what the issues are, but actually doing something about them, that is something that we don't see as much. And I don't think that's an individual issue. I think that there are systems and structures in place that make it so that people don't have the energy to clap back against this or don't feel like they're in a secure enough position with their own careers that they can do this. And of course, it's easier for people with tenure, but for a lot of us who are not yet burned out, we um, put ourselves in jeopardy by speaking out about it. And so um, I think, I don't know, there, I just have some radical thoughts about the ways that we need to reorganize the academy to make it more supportive for people, but I'll save some of them for a later. That's radical at all, really. Yeah, yeah we're listening to Paige about this. Great. Fabulous. Great way to start the morning. 100%. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could also tell us what the feminist methodology is and and how you're basically, what kind of uh, methods do you incorporate in your line of research? Yes. So, I mean, feminist methodology is a broad concept, right? And so oftentimes we will see feminist methodologies equated with qualitative methodologies. And I will say, in my opinion, at least, there are more opportunities to practice feminist ethics within the context of qualitative research than quantitative research. Um, You know, there are some ways to do quantitative research in a way that is supportive to participants and ensures that participants feel as though they have agency throughout the process, but we see it less often in quantitative research. But when I, so I identify as a feminist social psychologist, it is important to me that um, participants are, you know, that it, Participating in research is a positive experience that does not traumatize them, uh, that they are actively engaged in and that they have a say in. Um, The research should reflect them and it should, and they should feel proud to be a part of it. It shouldn't just be something that they do and then get over with. So um, that's something that we do in qualitative research a lot. So I, you know, always give participants Uh, you know, just small things. I feel like my feminist ethic is kind of woven into the ways that I do research. And so a lot of it kind of presumably looks rather similar to mainstream methods, but it's the timbre of the way that it's done and it's the small things. So, um, you know, I'll take you through a standard qualitative project. Um, Participants are recruited online. They contact me for a a semi-structured interview. Participants are sent the questions ahead of time so that nobody's caught off guard. They can change the questions if they'd like. They can refuse to answer questions if they'd like. There is no pushing. Um, A lot of the time, so one of the projects that I'm doing right now with Dr. Asia Eaton, we're taking a trauma-informed approach. And so we ensure that participants always feel as though they're safe and that they can share their stories. And at any point, if that does not, if the, if the space becomes unsafe, the interview can stop and there are no questions asked. Um, something that I have recently started doing is allowing participants to view their transcripts after, uh, prior to having them 
analyzed to give them the opportunity to clarify their points and to ensure that they're represented in the best possible light. So then the data analysis happens and something I just adore, qualitative data analysis, I adore the process of not just kind of identifying patterns, but the reflexivity process as a comprehensive and consuming process for me. So like allowing research to be not just science, but also art. So when we talk about reflexivity in qualitative research, we, it means the way that we process the, the material that's in front of us and how it is that we identify our own biases and work with them to develop a better understanding of the way that knowledge was co-created between yourself and that person. And so oftentimes my reflexivity process will include like drawing and art and dance and things like that. And I just love to allow myself to get lost in the process of embodying these people's experiences and holding their stories in a way that feels appropriate for me. And I think that this is something that we don't really talk about a lot when we talk about research. A lot of the time we're like, we're trying to sound super objective. We don't want any of this flowery, frilly stuff coming in. But if we think about the ways, particularly qualitative research is conducted and analyzed, we are human beings and our experiences shape the way that we do things. Um, in general, I feel like Objectivity is a veneer, and it's silly to assume that we can ever be objective in any research study. Uh, and of course, pre-registration and open science does help with that in some ways, but we are humans. And I think recognizing our humanity throughout the research process is critical to developing a more realistic understanding of the way that we're approaching data and the way that we're doing science. Mm. So, so anyway, the data analysis happens, you send the transcript, uh, not the transcript, you send the manuscript out to the participants, they get another say. So if they, if the way that I have represented them in the manuscript is not accurate to their experiences, then that's a problem. And that means that I have not provided my participants with the agency to, um, or at least I have not, let me rephrase that. If the participants feel as though the analysis is not consistent with their lived experiences or that I have portrayed them in a light that is not the way that they want to be portrayed, even if it's anonymized, then that's not acceptable because they were involved in the creation of this and they should have a say in it. And so um, like I have a study that I'm, I just need to press submit on it, but it's nearly ready to go um, where I, I interviewed men who identify as feminists. And right before I pressed, right before I, you know, was done with the manuscript, I let the participants have a last say in it and they had more questions and they wanted me to change things. And it slowed down the research process quite a lot, but it's important for me that all the participants who made this study what it was feel as though they are represented in a light that they feel proud of and that they feel good about their participation in the study. So we talk about feminist research, we're talking about our epistemology and a, a commitment to asking questions and thinking critically about the way that we typically do research and looking for opportunities to ensure that participants feel safe and secure and supported and that this that the research was something that um, made them feel involved in something bigger not just like they were doing a small task for a small sum of money um, and I think that's what I talk, when I talk about feminist methods, these are the things that come to mind. Yeah, it sounds like a, a lot more humanistic approach, like it's a lot more um, well-rounded. 
Because I think a lot of times, um, you know, like even when I was working in my previous lab, I never really felt like I was uh, connecting with the participants in any way, nor was it an expectation. I think in some sense, we were um, kind of encouraged to stay detached and mostly just, you know, run the experiments, collect the cortisol data and, you know, just go through the procedure. Um, so that's very interesting. It's very different from, from my own experience. I feel and I understand the value of that kind of research. Of course, it's imperative that we you know, there are the ways that we do things have informed lots of important things throughout the world. However, I think it's, for me, just given the kind of work that I do, it's silly to me. And, you know, it's, it's ironic to me that in a profession where we try to understand the human experience, that we dehumanize our participants in so many ways. So uh, trying to make it clear that these, at least in qualitative research, that these are people who have varied experiences, who come from different walks of life. They are not data points, they are human beings, and they deserve respect and autonomy within the research process. And that's just the way that I approach qualitative research, at least. Yeah, yeah I just to this. Yeah, I, I've also done a bit of qualitative research and I don't ever remember reaching out to the participants and asking them to look over their transcript and making sure that they're okay with everything that they've said. It's kind of just assumed, oh yeah, you said this, we're just going to go with it. So just hearing you say that, it's like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. We should definitely put them into the process because they've agreed to do this. They've, they're they part of it and it should be an encouragement to have them look over their things and make sure that it's the best reflection of themselves. So, And some people would argue that that disrupts the objectivity of the research where it's like, you want to understand what they said in that moment. And you, know, you can analyze the way that I mean, if we look at something like discourse analysis, we can understand the ways that sentences are worded and, and things like that. But um, people make mistakes when they talk. You know, people aren't perfect. And it can be interesting to analyze the patterns that come out of people's errors in the ways that they speak. But for the kind of work that I do, at least, um, I want to make sure that everybody feels good and feels comfortable. Because sometimes you'll see, I mean, and there's value to this research too, I guess, but there are some times when I read papers where participants are just portrayed in such a negative light where I'm like, this person volunteered to be a part of your study and here you are totally trashing them. Um, I, and like, I recognize there are, I mean, people who do work with, you know, populations where it's important that we critically analyze the way that they're speaking. So like people who do work with, with men who abuse women, like it's important that we break some of what it is that they're saying down. But I do feel that taking a compassionate approach to understanding these people's experiences can shed light on new experiences and potentially make them feel better. But it's, right. there's just a lot there. Do you think that's being practiced commonly across all qualitative research or is that more of a new thing? Um, I think it depends on the analytic method that's being used. I get asked to review a lot of qualitative papers and I'll let you know, I'll rip it apart if there's no reflexivity process mentioned, unless it's specifically, um, unless they explicitly are using a methodology that does not require that. So if they're doing like content analysis or consensual qualitative research with no reflexivity process and that's clearly articulated, um, then that's fine. But, but for the most part, I think that people do qualitative research sloppily a lot of the times. And a lot of times sloppy qualitative research is published because reviewers aren't familiar with a lot of the literature about it. Um, I think a lot of times people just think, oh, qualitative research is easy. You just talk to people uh, and you write it up like a, you know, like a news article, but that is not what qualitative research is. And um, it makes me a little bit sad to see studies published like that because not just because 
qualitative research is important to me, which it is. Um, and I want to see it portrayed in the best possible light, but it's also a missed opportunity for the researchers to engage in this kind of just meaningful and heartening journey of doing good reflexive qualitative research. And I just think it's a missed opportunity. And there's various reasons why people choose not to do it. Some of it's lack of education. Some of it's the pressure to publish quickly. Mm. And some of it's that people know that they don't have to engage in this process. And so why would they? It's cumbersome. It's emotionally burdensome. Uh, but it's such a magnificent and marvelous experience. Just like even I, as a person, have learned so much about myself through this process. I think people are really missing out. So um, just kind of logistically, I'm kind of curious, like how would data analysis like realistically happen for, for this kind of qualitative data? Would you do some sort of like textual analysis or? Yep. So it really, again, it depends on the methodology you're, that you're using um, and the epistemological framework under which you're working. So if I'm taking a constructivist grounded theory approach to understanding how it is that my participants have um, have lived through a, a similar experience. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll use my own research for example. So when I did my eating disorders in the workplace paper, I interviewed um, 70 women who had experienced uh, eating disorder recovery in the context of their workplace, in the context of being employed. And so how it is that we do that then, and you can do it by hand, you can do it through uh, coding software such as in vivo, but the way that constructivist grounded theory works is that you would go through it. Um, so there's three phases, there's open, axial, and selective coding. In open coding, you're basically just looking at all of the text and highlighting segments that you think could potentially serve as codes, as significant and uh, important bits of information that could potentially serve a higher meaning. Uh, then the actual, the actual coding process is condensing some of those codes so that you identify commonalities between them. Um, and then the selective coding process and stringing them together in order to establish a cohesive uh, theoretical framework on the basis of that. However, the reflexivity process and the memoing process is how is you recognize that what it is that you're reading, it's like, what was I feeling in that moment? And how is it possible that this person provided this response on the basis of what I was providing to them? And so it's consistently thinking about these dynamics that were happening while the data was being collected and your own biases that influence the way that you perceive the information that's in front of you. And so um, it's long, it takes a long time to do it. And that sounds like it. Yeah, and when you're studying, like, so I have experience with an eating disorder. I was in eating disorder treatment while I was doing my research on eating disorders. So for me, like that, I almost feel like it was part of my healing process was to be able to kind of think critically about the way that participants, it was interesting to see how participants perceived me, how I perceived participants, how our own mutual behaviors were consistently being perceived against one another's. And so um, I just, oh, it's so rich. There's just so much there. I, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting time-consuming and uh, rewarding process, I would say. Mm. That's very interesting because I actually have heard um, kind of like, I feel like there's, or at least there's a bit of like a discouragement for um, students with any like specific background to study that specific background. And I find that very odd, isn't it? Especially in the application cycle, you know, they specifically tell you like, oh, don't, don't get so personal in your um, st personal statement. But yes. But what if your personal experience is the motivator for you to pursue that career path and you're not really encouraged to talk about it because it's considered unprofessional? It is, I think, yeah. I mean, I think that lived experience is invaluable for understanding research. I understand too that there are people who perceive, who think that research needs to be quote unquote objective and that this could potentially bias your interpretation of results and, and the likes. Um, however, there is, there's, 
quite a lot of uh, work and research and theorizing that has been done on the concept, I'll talk about qualitative research again, but within qualitative research, there are benefits to being an insider to people's experiences and there are benefits to being an outsider. Um, and so what I try to do, so I'll talk about my male feminist study again, but what we do, um, I interviewed men. I am an outsider to the experience of being a man. I am a cisgender woman. However, another person on the research team is a cisgender man. And so he would sometimes pick up on things that I couldn't pick up on because I was an outsider and he was an insider to these men's experiences. So there's value in both. Um, but recognizing the limitations of each is important. Mm, absolutely. Um, do you think that there has been a shift in how women are portrayed in the media and public in terms of body image? Oh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I think I don't want to discount the progress that has been made over the last several decades. There has certainly been a lot of progress made compared to what we used to see in like the 50s and 60s and 70s, yeah. 80s, even since then, like really <laughs> the 90s and the 2000s, 2010s, and now 2020, we're seeing rapid progress happening. Absolutely. We're nowhere near we, where we need to be at all. We still, I mean, sure, gender neutral clothing, it, it's nice to see it depicted. Whose bodies is it being depicted on? Thin white women for the most part. Um, the lack of diversity, size diversity, racial diversity, um, any sort of diversity in advertising is ridiculous. And the sexual objectification of women in advertising continues despite repeated calls for change from feminist activists for decades. Um, it's getting, yeah, sure, it's getting better, but the problem persists. Um, I think in particular, the lack of size diversity is, you know, it's appalling to see. I don't know if you folks are familiar with any of the, the research on weight stigma, but there is like a whole trend of quote unquote, and this is not my words, these are the words that are used in the research, but headless fatties, where people with fat bodies will be depicted without a head and it's just their fat body uh, and that's supposed to be representative of them. So like I am someone who studies self-objectification and so to see people's bodies literally representing them in media advertisements is very upsetting to me. But the same is true of, of slender women where women are depicted sexually and their faces are not portrayed. This is a very common thing that we see in, in media advertisements. And so um, I hate to be a downer, but uh, it's, yeah, we got a lot, a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the realistic take on it. Yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> So much that needs to be done, even with uh, having people from different uh, um, racial identities and um, gender identities as well being uh, represented Absolutely. in advertising. So I'm yeah. gonna go off on one more tangent on this. Please go on. But you know, we are seeing the emergence. We're seeing the kind of we're seeing the thin spo trend going away. We're seeing less. Uh, praise for emaciated bodies. However, in its place, we are seeing things like quote unquote fitspiration and quote unquote body positivity. Um, fitspiration is ridiculous. It's extremely thin women who also have muscles. So it's um, even more unrealistic and women are required to do even more to meet those expectations. Fitspo for the most part is a little bit garbage. Um, there are some accounts that genuinely portray a healthy and realistic body image. However, I think it's important to interrogate why it is that we as a culture are absolutely obsessed with women doing things with their bodies. It's, I don't know if people know this, but women do stuff that's not related to their bodies too. And I think it would be great if we could focus a little bit more on that. The mm -hmm. second bit, body positivity, important, very critical. The, its roots are radical. However, the way that it's been appropriated in mainstream culture not radical, mostly just white women who are like a size six to eight being like, wow, 
I'm not a size, you know, zero to two. Amazing. But realistically, the we know the average size for women in America is 14 or potentially even higher at this point, which is fine and good and normal. But the body positivity movement is generally not radical. We're not really seeing trans bodies. We're not seeing black bodies. And there is, of course, a, a subculture of body positivity that does really embrace lots of different things. But that is a subculture. And that's not what we see generally depicted. So mm. progress is being made. Um, it's not enough. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Because I'm, I'm non-binary. And for me personally, I struggle greatly with, you know, finding clothes that fit my gender identity. And I think for a lot of trans people, that is, you know, a very big issue that we face is that, you know, the fashion industry is highly binary. And even today, you know, as like, we're seeing more kind of so-called gender neutral um, models, you know, wearing like things that are supposedly gender neutral on stage. But I understand that that is a positive thing for women. That is a positive thing for women to see that um, they can wear something that is considered to be more boyish or gender neutral and as being, you know, portraying fashion magazines. But on the other hand, I wonder um, how many of them are actually non-binary or, or trans. Um, because I think I would like to see more representation in, uh, for the trans community in that regard. Because if you're going to have someone wear clothes that traditionally trans people are going to wear, then maybe feature some actual trans people in the process. Okay. So important, so, so, so important uh, to see more representation. Um, it's not like there are not trans models who are, you know, happy and willing to do this. It's exactly. just whether or not they fit into this narrow beauty standard that we perceive as being important for, for selling. And a lot of this, sorry, I didn't mean to get this radical super early in the morning, but a lot of this at the end of the day comes back down to capitalism. And so people want to sell the most product. And so they're going to try to, you know, advertise to the widest possible audience. And what that is, is like cisgender women and cisgender men. And so that's at the end of the day, if they're thinking about their bottom line, that's what they're going to keep doing. And if they genuinely care about equity, diversity, and inclusion, like all of their stupid websites say, then actually they should be doing a lot more. Um, you know, put your money where your mouth is and start hiring people who actually do the things that you say that are important to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that like, um, I have a bit of like a, a controversial opinion on it, I think, because I think um, we're seeing this kind of like corporations trying to catch up with the trend, so to speak, and they're selling products that are supposed to like woke, you know, like H&M selling like t-shirts with like rainbow flags on them. Um, and, and I know that's being like hotly debated among like a lot of my communities about whether they deserve to profit money from people like us um, just because they want to catch up with the social trend. And I used to hold the opinion that, you know, I think it's a positive thing. I think, you know, they're, of course, they're like, kind of catering to our needs for once, why are we rejecting that? But I have to say that I've changed my opinion 180 on that. Um, now I'm more on the side of, no, that's not appropriate. I don't think they should be profiting money from anyone just because um, they're catching up with the trend like 20 years too late. Yeah, when social justice colludes with capitalism, mm. we run into some yucky, yucky intersections. <laughs> but I mean... I, but, you know, there's there's complications to that, too. Right. So if we're talking about models and there are trans models who want to be hired and we can compensate them and they can have living wages and and, you know, we see more representation, then that's good. But at the end of the day, if it's still serving the purpose of like of being oppressive and, and fundamentally disempowering people by taking their money from them, like that's another just whole set of circumstances that we have to think about. And so we can like theorize and debate to death. Um, but I think, you know, something that I like to do is. And this happens quite a lot in debates that I have, because I mean, clearly I feel very comfortable like attacking all of these different <laughs> systems and structures. And like my poor friends are like, 
we, we just wanted to have coffee. Like we didn't <laughs> talk about all this, but what often happens is that one of my friends, after I like, you know, go into the spiel about like all, all of the different systemic oppressions and yada, 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 they'll be like, okay, but this is my lived experience. And my lived experience is not consistent with what it is that you're sharing. And like, I've come into this with all these different unique circumstances. And like, yes, I know I may be complicit in all of this that, and the other thing, but I need a job. And like, I need to make sure that I can put a roof over my house, a roof over my head. And so um, there's just, you know, individual circumstances. Um, hit a wall when we talk about uh, structural oppression and it's important to think about it from different angles so I think uh, it's an interesting debate to have I don't know if there's like a universal good or a universal bad about any of this stuff I think it's all just kind of complicated yeah absolutely for sure I was gonna say them that may have something to do with how Americans are super individualistic and think about their own personal circumstances a lot but then I remember you're in Canada so I wonder does it differ do you think between how Canadians view themselves as more of individualistic versus community I know that's very off topic but I was just curious about that I mean the culture of Canada is rather similar to the United States but don't tell any Canadians that I said that but (laughs) it's um it I will say there's more mutual respect for people here. It seems at least like, I mean, we're seeing it with the pandemic right now where we recognize that we don't want to, you know, overburden our hospitals and things because we have public health insurance, socialized health insurance and God bless it. My Lord, um, United States is so, so, so far behind on this. It's appalling, but there does seem to be a little bit more mutual respect, but I don't know. I would say the individualistic culture is like, it's definitely here in Canada as well. Okay, yeah. yeah, thanks for shining a light on that. Yeah, I mean, I'm Chinese, so, like, to me, Canada and the U.S. are, like, the same. I don't know about, like, for Kat, because you, you grew up in Lebanon. Yeah, so I grew up in the Middle East mainly, and I always, I guess there's that this portrayal that Canada is, like, the better U.S. or that Canada is the nicer uh, version of the U.S., <laughs> sort of. Um, but the more I listen to... Americans. Yeah, the more I listen to like Canadians actually speaking about their own experiences and now uh, how you shone a light on that as well. I think it's very similar culture wise and just um, value wise as, as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to love about Canada. Canada's got a real dark history, though, and a lot of it just gets swept under the rug and we don't hear about Absolutely. it. Enough. So, like, for people that don't know what residential schools are and missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. Um, oh, yep. Yep. Look into that. I can't believe people have stopped talking about the forced sterilizations without consent to Native American women. I cannot believe that, like, that got washed out of the news cycle. Like, what? Like, this is a huge deal. Like, to me, that qualifies as active genocide. Like, I don't know about you guys, but, like, that to me is an atrocity. And I'm really surprised that, like, people have just kind of stopped talking about it. Now they're kind of just like, oh, yeah, like, they're being murdered out there. Um, It's a thing. It happens. Like what? I mean, we could go on and on about the atrocities that um, people just forget about uh, with the new thing that comes up. It's yeah, it's absolutely heinous. There's there's a lot that we need to do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for sure. 21st century being like, pick your favorite atrocity to pay attention to today. No. Yep. Well, especially this year. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, I have a question about um, women's sexual agency, and it's something that I'm personally quite interested in. Um, I'm very interested in you know, to like, talk about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, how do you think women's sexual agency has changed throughout the waves um, of different feminist movements in the West, 
especially with you know the supposed expansion of freedom associated with these like te technological platforms um, like OnlyFans. Interesting. Well, sexual agency is a very complicated thing. Sexual agency is everywhere, but it's uh, insufficient for understanding the totality of women's sexual experiences. So um, we know that, I'm very glad that we have already discussed collusion with capitalism because I think that some of it is going to come up here. Um, but I have like a very nuanced answer. Like I can see this from lots of different angles. It's not like I have this one super radical opinion and I refuse to see others. I think every time I read more about sexual agency and like I have this book right here and I just read it for a book club, um, pleasure activism changed my whole perspective. I mean, it opened my eyes to new perspectives about sexual agency and pleasure and, and sexual satisfaction. But and then just this morning at 4.30 in the morning, I woke up and I was like, I need to read everything Sarah McClelland has written about intimate injustice and intimate justice. And so that's what I was doing this morning. And so my world is constantly being um, changed and my perspective is, is being informed by, by new ideas as I continue to learn more about this. Um, okay, how to begin? Obviously the sexual oppression of women is a very bad thing, but I think that it takes many forms. So while certainly we're seeing expanded sexual agency for women, lately and we see the encouragement of women to you know um we see the encouragement of women to perform their sexuality certainly um we like to see porn of women people like that people will pay money for that um do is that sexual agency in some ways i think it, it's good to think about um yes women can express themselves sexually but i also think it's critical to consider who is being empowered by this um, is Rachel, uh, Dr. Calagero and I have a paper in the Archives of Sexual Behavior about this. Um, it's important to think about do women, and some women do, um, and you know, those women have their own experiences, but it's just nuanced because there are several women, there are lots of women who feel coerced and pressured into engaging in this because now the standard for women is sexualized. And so women who step out of that face their own unique social circumstances that make it challenging for women to not do that. So like, personally, like I'm a pretty sexually conservative person. And so there are lots of different forces and factors that make me feel ashamed for that. And so we see it happening in like lots of different directions. Um, I think we, and now, I mean, especially we're seeing the proliferation of, and like sex work is of course real work, but, um, is work sexual agency or is work work? So if we're talking about the collusion of sexual agency and empowerment with capitalism, we have to critically consider if that's a sexually subjective experience or if this is just a means of participating in our own sexual objectification. So I think that there's, I don't know, there's a lot there. Uh, but then of course, like, you know, let's throw another factor into this. Let's throw race into the equation. And that changes the conversation dramatically because we know that like for black women, they are highly sexualized and reclaiming their sexual agency in a world and in a culture that consistently like just uh, refuses to see them or um, sees them as, you know, uh, stereotyped or, or in, you know, a stigmatized way, that act of reclaiming sexual agency can be a, a, an especially uh, empowering way to combat not only sexism, but also racism. And so there's nuances and complications and layers to all of this. But um, I'm sorry, I don't have a straightforward answer for you, but it really depends on the context that we're talking about. 
Absolutely. I mean, I don't think this question requires a straightforward answer. I think it's inherently quite um, nuanced. You know, the commodification of sex, is that really a good or bad thing, depending on the context, right? Yeah. Um, and like, I think we would be remiss if we didn't also talk about the fact that sexual violence uh, and sexual trafficking continue to be major problems throughout the world. And like, uh, we need to recognize the the harm and the threat that is implied with every experience of sexual objectification. And so while it is that we're seeing, it's great that we're seeing more women uh, feel comfortable about their bodies and sharing, um, and, you know, feeling comfortable sharing sexualized imagery of themselves. I mean, I think there's a lot of different things. First of all, we know that sexually objectified women are dehumanized in the eyes of men. And so if we wanna really be reducing violence against women, um, humanizing women is probably, our best bet there but also we know that there's like and this is some of the work that i'm doing with dr asia eaton is we know that we are seeing this horrific uptick and spike in non-consensual pornography right now so while women can sometimes take these images and send them to and the same is true for men anyone or non-binary folks anybody can send images to other people and it can be like a sexually empowering experience however it's also a very dangerous experience and more and more people are finding themselves on these you know porn platforms um, and it has, you know, the qualitative research on non-consensual pornography and all forms of image-based sexual abuse suggests that this is an absolutely horrifically traumatic experience for people who recognize themselves as victims and that it's a problem that continues to travel with them and follow them through life. They live in a constant state of fear and anxiety that these images are going to be um, brought up or that someone that they know has seen them. And so sexual agency and empowerment it, uh, are good if they happen in the context of like a consensual, supportive sexual relationship. And I mean that like, you, I mean, you can have a sexual relationship with yourself. You can have a sexual relationship with lots of different people, but as long that trust and that support and that genuine desire to participate in that behavior have to be there. Otherwise it's just a replication of how it is that women have been sexualized in the media um, for decades, right? Like, are we just, in some ways, are some people just, um, now participating in a patriarchal structure, but calling it agency and therefore getting us to participate in it ourselves. Like, I think that it's important that we are thinking about all of these things when we think about women's sexual experiences and sexual subjectivities. That is absolutely fascinating. I wonder, do you think, do you think it's the element of, um, you know, this like digital photograph or video, the existence of those things that make it potentially traumatizing. Do you think the same effects would be observed if it was more sex work in real life? I mean, oh yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm talking about image-based sexual abuse in particular. Sex work is a completely different thing. Sex work, for people who do sex work, like that can be, it's so interesting talking about sex work too. Like I could talk about this forever. So, I mean, there are of course systems of oppression that happen within sex work. And there are people who do survival sex work. And like that, it, I would say that for most people, for some people who do survival sex work, it's not a sexually empowering experience for them. It's something that they do to survive. However, there are also people who have like trauma histories who find that being a sex, doing sex work um, gives them the opportunity to practice that agency in relationships where they are benefiting from it, not only emotionally, but also uh, they're being compensated for it. So there, there's like lots of complexities to sex work as well. But when I talk about image-based sexual abuse, I'm talking about the non-consensual sharing of sexualized images of people. And that can happen in the form of taking sexualized images of people without their consent. It can be sharing it without their consent, or it can be threatening to share those images without people's consent. And um, it's important that we are always thinking about 
the risk that we are putting ourselves in by participating in some of these things. So even if they feel good and like realistically, even if it is a sexually subjective experience for us where, where we're like, yes, I'm hot, I'm happy with this, it's still potentially putting us at risk. And so um, there's just a lot to consider with all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a question about intersectional feminism, actually, um, specifically about Harry Styles' recent Vogue, you know, feature. Um, do you, how do you think intersectional feminism, specifically, you know, the increasing understanding of gender as a spectrum rather than being binary, um, could influence a woman's self-image? Um, self-image or body image? Oh, interesting. What's the difference? So body image is specific to the way that you perceive your, like, your physical body, whereas a self-image could be more along the lines of how it is that you perceive yourself. In general. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess body image then. And okay. I was, I'm curious to, sorry, I'm curious to know how you feel about Harry Styles' recent Vogue feature and, you know, like the social support and backlash that he has received. Um, I love it. I love it when people do stuff that's like non-cisgender. <laughs> I love it when people break gender rules. And some of my research actually looks at that in both women and men. Like I have a study right now, excited about it. But it's specifically looking at how it is that cisgender women who participate in unladylike behaviors and hold unladylike attitudes, how it is that as a positive, potentially, to the analysis still, but how that potentially has a positive influence on their self-objectification and um, disordered eating behaviors. So my hypothesis, based on some of the research that I've done um, and other research that I've published with Rachel Calagero, Dr. Rachel Calagero, my supervisor, shout out, Rachel, you're amazing. Thanks for <laughs> being there for me. Um, but we know that rigid conformity to feminine norms and particularly body related norms and relationship related norms has a detrimental effect on women's um, overall sense of self. Uh, we know that women who think that being in a romantic relationship is something that is imperative for them. We also know that women who think that having a slim body or, you know, it's imperative or thinking that it's important to focus on your makeup. We know that these women don't fare as well um, mental health wise in general. That's what the, the, the trends seem to suggest Be as long as that, um, that about like you are participating in those things because you feel you need to not necessarily because you want to um and that's it's the conformity aspect that we lose the agency in there mm -hmm. so um i think that all forms of diversity in in advertising are good and like of course advertising has its own set of circumstances and complications if we talk about colluding with capitalism are we a, are we talk about social justice colluding with capitalism i feel like this is a prime example of that where we're like oh my god yeah harry styles being agentic and doing whatever he wants um i apologize does harry styles use he pronouns yeah no i, I believe so yeah okay. for right. now um for now <laughs> <laughs> that's I'll use he pronouns for now. And if someone is listening to this in the future and Harry Styles uses different pronouns, then I apologize. We're doing our best with what we can. Exactly. Um, yes. Um, so it's good that, you know, if this is something that Harry Styles genuinely wants, um, that he's being able to, you know, perform gender in the ways that feel appropriate for him. And that's great. And everybody should feel free to do that. Um, I, I love it. I mean, I get all excited. And this is some of the work that I've done as well, where it's like fathers who talk to their daughters about body image, you know, uh, men who identify as feminists. I love it when men are able to um, explore those parts of themselves. And like, there's so many reasons why men are, not that they're incapable of doing that, but feel that they can't 
explore some of that. And some of that is internalized pressure. We know that men, you know, many men feel a rigid adherence to masculine norms is important for them. Um, but we also know that there's a social backlash against men who, who don't participate in those systems. And like for men, the, the threat is a lot higher than it is for women. I mean, no, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say it's a lot higher, but the threat is definitely there for men in a way that, um, at least when it comes to clothing, we don't see for women. Like women, for the most part, I mean, sure, there are like a few, a few people who are like, women should not wear pants. But for the most part, we recognize like, yeah, women, women are going to wear pants and that's fine. But however, when a man wears a dress, like there is a threat of violence that he could potentially face. Um, because we know that if we look at Mahalik's conceptualization of conformity to masculine norms, disdain for homosexuality is one of the masculine norms. And so particularly for men who rigidly adhere to masculine stereotypes and expectations, they may see um, like Harry Styles in this, in this advertisement as being threatening or as someone that they should detest. And they may in fact mock him or potentially, I mean, I'm assuming that he's got bodyguards and stuff, so he's not actually in the threat of violence, but um, would potentially inflict harm upon him as a means of demonstrating their masculinity. And, you know, that not only portrays them as like a real man, you know, we talk about precarious manhood theory, which is uh, Vandello and Boston's theory. And I apologize, there are a few other authors on the original theoretical framework, but we know that men need to be rigidly, you know, in order to be considered socially as quote unquote real men, men must be consistently demonstrating these public displays of masculine behavior in order to be perceived as like real men. And so men reward masculine behavior, but women also, heterosexual women also often reward um, masculine behavior. And so, um, there's lots of ways that it's difficult for men to, both personally and socially, to break those rules and defy those norms. But God, when you see it, it's beautiful. It's such a beautiful thing. And Harry Styles looks amazing in that dress. Looks better than I would. So um, I love to see it. I, I think, you know, it's bad because it's colluding with capitalism. And it's, you know, this controversy, this stir is certainly going to sell more issues of that, uh, of, of Vogue or whatever. But the cultural conversation is happening because of it. So uh, in some ways it's good, in some ways it's, it's bad. Um, but yeah, I, I guess those are my disjointed thoughts about the Harry Styles cover. Very jointed, <laughs> very yeah. put together. Yeah, um, very Everything that you said. Yeah, seriously, it's very well said and needs to be said. Yeah. Um, and all the theoretical frameworks that you put into perspective for us too, into all of these uh, attitudes and behaviors uh, towards sexuality and and masculinity and femininity is very fascinating. So thank you for that. Yeah, And thanks for bringing up the point of like heterosexual women contributing to like really yes. toxic behavior of um, toxic men. Cause like, I was just thinking about that the other day, like, wow, if only women would stop dating <laughs> shitty men, the world would be a better place. <laughs> like we gotta, like women have to stop rewarding like men who are so hell bent on maintaining their toxic masculinity. Like they need to, yeah. Stop being able to get a date to realize no one would want them. If we want to take one step back, then if we want to bring it back to a broader, you know, system structure and socialization of women, like women are taught that that's what they deserve. Well, both that that is what men should be, and that's what they should be attracted to. But also, women are socialized to have horrible self esteem and believe that they should take whatever they can get. And so, um, there's so much that needs to happen, like both 
you know, at an interpersonal level, at a personal level, but also in the structural and social um, and a social level. We need to change the way that we talk about gender. We need to change the way that we talk about sexuality and attraction and relationships and sexuality. And we need to make it so that people feel comfortable expressing and exploring these different facets and components of their gender and their sexuality. But we also need to create a world in which it's safe to do so. And so there needs to be more change at all of these different levels in order for any of this to actually happen moving forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for giving us like this awesome body of information and contextualizing all of our questions. Um, it was absolutely wonderful to have you on our podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, Oh my God, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so articulate today. I'm sorry, Kat, do you want to yeah. feel like <laughs> you're better at the concluding and the introductions? <laughs> we should just yeah, have no. you for um, all those roles. <laughs> Jacqueline, you have been fantastic today. Um, I cannot wait for more people to hear this and to read your research and to yeah. listen to your podcast as well, the Feminist Academic Podcast, which is amazing as well and how you discuss these issues with uh, different researchers in the field. Um, is there anything else that you would like us to talk about with like your book, your website, your uh, research or your socials. socials? Yeah, if you want to take away is that uh, you're on a job market. Yeah, I'm on the job market. Someone <laughs> please hire me. I would love to be in Southern California. That 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 would be my ideal place. But the NIH, if you're listening to this, I would also love to be in Miami yeah. because that's where I submitted my F32 to. Are you um, in USC? Uh, no, I. I am, I'm applying to a few postdocs at um, SDSU in Southern California, but um, I, I have personal reasons why I would like to be there. So uh, we shall we shall see what happens. With- yes, no matter what, it'll be a warmer place than Canada. So that, that is <laughs> for so, sure. Hopefully, uh, I could do without another Canadian winter. For <laughs> um, thank you for the opportunity to speak with y'all today. Uh, I appreciate. Any, any platform where I can just geek out about feminism, I'm here for it. So thank you for this. Thank you for taking the time. We really, really appreciate it. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And hope um, you have a great rest of your day. Yes. You too. All right, bye.